Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group podcast. I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, an academic hip and knee surgeon at Louisiana State University, where our department mascot is an alligator operating inside of a hurricane. I have no conflicts of interest with any of the authors of these studies or the devices discussed. And I'm Lenny Buller. I work at Indiana University, where life's pretty stable, but my hips aren't. I also have no conflicts of interest with the authors or these studies or any of the devices that are going to be discussed. I'm Mark Meldron. I'm in private practice at Slocum Center for Orthopedics in Eugene, Oregon. I put the ally in constitutionally varus. I also have no conflicts of interest with the authors or of these studies or the devices discussed. Now we're going to introduce our guest, Dr. James Brown. Dr. Brown is an associate professor at University of Virginia, where he is also the division head of adult reconstruction and the vice chair. In addition to this, he served as the 2019 AUKUS program chair, and he is also currently on the program committee. He is the associate editor for the Journal of Arthroplasty and a past member at large on the board of directors of AUKUS, as well as having served on the AUKUS research and finance committees. He's also a past member of the Arthroplasty Today editorial board and has published around 200 peer-reviewed publications, possibly the youngest person ever inducted into the HIPSA site. And welcome Dr. Brown to our podcast today. Thanks, Anna. It's great to be here. I think at least half of that may be true. Thank you. I appreciate the kind introduction. I don't anticipate I'll have any conflict of interest today in our discussion. I'll mention that if anything comes up. The big conflict of interest I have is that both you and Mark were fellows with us at the University of Virginia. Anna, you were fantastic, uh, great physician, excellent with patients, great surgeon. And uh, Mark, you were pretty good too. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. You. I will send you that check later. So now we're going to move on to discuss a study that Dr. Brown was actually an author on as well that was published in the October 2020 Journal of Arthroplasty entitled The Efficacy and Safety of Gabapentinoids in Total Joint Arthroplasty, Systematic Review and Direct Meta-Analysis. So to briefly summarize, this was an analysis of data from 13 high-quality studies of gabapentinoid use during the perioperative period around primary total hip and knee arthroplasty. They found that in the perioperative period, Prior to discharge, pregabalin specifically, as opposed to gabapentin, reduced opioid consumption, but gabapentinoids overall did not reduce postoperative pain. And that after discharge, gabapentin did not reduce pain or postoperative opioid consumption, but that pregabalin did. They concluded that there is moderate evidence to support pregabalin use in total joint arthroplasty, but they do warn that gabapentinoids overall can lead to sedation and respiratory depression, especially when combined with opioids or other central nervous system depressants. This was in contrast to previous meta-analyses that had found that gabapentin did reduce post-operative pain and opioid consumption. I thought obviously the strength of this study is that it's a meta-analysis including high quality evidence. The limitations that they also discussed is that most of the studies combine total knee and total hip patients. And of course, because of their strict inclusion criteria for the quality of the data, they were only able to analyze 13 studies. So first question for you, Dr. Brown, which you already hinted at the answer of is whether you liked me or Mark better during fellowship. So I think uh, we've already answered that. We can move uh, on to yeah, the next yeah. one. <laughs> We're yeah, Underpowered study. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to know though, which gabapentinoid do you generally use and or did you change anything in your practice as a result of these findings? 
Yeah, we did. We did change practice as a result of this uh, project. So first, let me thank uh, Charlie Hannon and Yale Fillingham, who are uh, members of the Young Arthroplasty Group, who really led the effort on this project. Uh, this was a team effort that involved not only AUKUS, but the Academy and a number of other societies as well. It was really a rigorous attempt to do a meta-analysis to look at what's, I think, become a fairly controversial topic. If you think about uh, you know, gabapentinoids, it's really a bit of an interesting story. I mean, gabapentin was initially approved in the late 90s and early 2000s for use in seizures and post-herpetic neuralgia. And it did not have an indication for post-surgical pain, but it was quickly adopted. There were a number of early studies that suggested that there may be some benefit, small studies, not great studies, but it was at this time where anesthesia was really interested in preemptive analgesia and the opioid issue was sort of coming to the forefront. And so there was a lot of interest, I think, in this eliminating opioids. And so this rapidly became a part of most of our multimodal analgesic uh, pathways. When I was a resident in the 2000s, this was right at the height of adoption of the gabapentinoids. And so we were using a lot of Neurontin. I think a lot of the early studies probably were overly optimistic and rosy in terms of the benefit and downplayed the risk. And that was our experience was we had the impression that uh, Neurontin was very safe and we used it. We didn't think there was much harm in giving it to patients. And if it prevented the use of opioids, then it seemed like a good thing. And so I think the use was certainly well-intentioned, but over the past few years, there's, I think, been renewed interest in some of the risks associated with the gabapentinoids, namely sort of the sedation, the dizziness, particularly in older patients and particularly in patients who are also taking uh, opioids. So as we went through the study, we were, of course, as you pointed out, limited by not having a ton of prospective randomized high-quality data. But we did have 13 studies to look at. I think when you look at perioperative pain control, as you pointed out, right around the time of surgery, really no evidence at all for Neurontin in terms of in-hospital or post-discharge benefit. And we were at the time using Neurontin, and so we have stopped using it. There's been some discussion at our shop about whether or not pregabalin is worth adopting in its place. As you mentioned, there were some potential benefits in terms of reduced opioid consumption early and potentially after discharge as well. Now, it may just be that patients are sedated, and these studies were compared to a non-active placebo as opposed to an active placebo. So if you compare pregabalin to a sedative, you may have the same effect in terms of reducing opioid consumption. So that's one limitation of the data for sure. I think since we put this data together, the FDA came out with concerns about the sedation issue. And I think more and more, there's being attention paid to the risks of gabapentinoids. And what is your standard multimodal postoperative pain regimen for primary total joints now that you're not including the gabapentinoids? Yes, like most people, we do use an opioid. We use uh, oxycodone typically for patients that have an intolerance. We'll often use hydromorphone instead or dilaudid. All patients get Tylenol. We're using oral Tylenol. Patients get a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, typically a COX-2. There are some potential exclusions there for renal function and cardiac disease or, you know, history of GI bleeding. We use dexamethasone selectively for patients postoperatively as well, but that pretty much, I think, sums it up. We have taken out the gabapentinoid at this point. Anything different between hips and knees or outpatients, inpatients? Yeah, yep. Pretty similar pathway for everybody. We have not managed those patients differently. I think you guys may be too young to remember, but uh, 10 years ago, the standard pain management postoperatively after total joints was the PCA. 
patient-controlled analgesia pump, and that was a nightmare. And probably the single biggest advance, I think, in post-operative pain management over the last 10 years has just been getting rid of the IV opioids. I mean, that has made a huge difference. All right. So the next article we're going to discuss is titled In Vivo Corrosion of Modular Dual Mobility Implants, a Retrieval Study. This was by Dr. Joshua Katz and the team at the Mayo Clinic. And it's an article that was published in the November edition of Journal of Arthroplasty. In this article, the authors performed a retrieval analysis of 12 modular dual mobility implants that were in situ for an average of 26 months. They performed a qualitative assessment of corrosion patterns and a quantitative measure of material loss on the backside taper of the MDM liner. Half of the implants were retrieved from primaries and the other half from revisions. The authors found all of the implants demonstrated some level of identifiable corrosion or wear, and over half had moderate or severe visible corrosion with a material loss consistent with clinically relevant metal disease from adverse local tissue reaction. So in terms of strengths, this is the first study to actually quantify corrosion and material loss from retrieved MDM components. And hopefully this is going to spark additional studies to be performed with larger numbers. In terms of limitations, it was noted that two-thirds of the femoral heads were cobalt chrome, and three out of 12 of the cases were actually revisions of dual modular necks. So it would be interesting to know if there's a change in the local milieu of metal ions that maybe increases corrosion at this taper in that setting. The authors did compare their corrosion scores between these groups and didn't find a difference, but again, the numbers are pretty small. It would have been also interesting if the authors reviewed the radiographs to determine whether any particular implant positions or maybe a canted liner, a mal-seated liner, was associated with the increased risk of corrosion or material loss. So I guess here's the dirty little question. Was it worth it? I mean, let's say the risk of instability in primaries nationally is like 1%. Mark, for you, let's say seven best case scenario, right? But it's a hundred percent chance that there's going to be some level of corrosion. Was it a good trade-off? So I guess that's the question. Are you guys using dual mobilities? Dual mobility is not anything new. It hasn't come out in the last five years. There's decent studies showing relative longevity with this stuff. So if everyone is getting corroding, why haven't we seen these negative outcomes? Is this a ticking time bomb that 10 years from now, it's just going to be like, we got to revise all these, but it's been out for 10 years. Like you'd think we would have seen the effects of this. Yeah. So there's no question. You do have to have some concern. You know, everything we do is a risk benefit. I think for the vast majority of patients with larger diameter heads, you're going to be able to get a good stable hip. And I don't see the advantage to a dual mobility. We rarely use it at our place. I think there may be a role in revision which is where you need to take a little bit more risk and make some compromises. But in primary hips, my indications are very, very slim. There may be some patients with complex lumbopelvic issues where you might consider it. You know, I don't think that's necessarily the wrong answer, but we have not gone strongly ahead with dual mobility in the primary population. So where are the big ceramic heads at? I mean, the biggest one that they're making is a 44. Why aren't manufacturers making bigger ceramic heads. Now that we have a nice robust trunnions on a lot of these stems, what's the rationale for not making a bigger ceramic head? Yeah, I mean, a 44 head's pretty big, right? I mean, I think you have to have a decent sized cup to be able to get a 44 head in. So you're not going to have many patients where you're going to be able to get a 44 head in. I think there's some debate about how big a head you really need. I mean, certainly from a jump distance standpoint, the bigger the head, the better. 
there's some data about impingement that you don't get a whole lot of benefit when you get above about a 36 to 40 head or so. I do think that there is the potential to have larger ceramic femoral heads. Uh, I just don't know that there's enough of a market to make it commercially viable. Got it. So at a certain point, um, I think it's important to emphasize too that this doesn't eliminate the necessity for putting in the implants properly. And if you put in the implants well, the cups position well, the femoral stems position well, you recreate your offset and leg length, I would hope you'd not be depending on those few millimeters between the 44 head and the 52 head for your stability. If, as we discussed, perhaps many people are using dual mobility in the setting of hip fractures, maybe those patients aren't necessarily living long enough to see the corrosion and or all of the intraprosthetic dislocations that may occur. So that may be a confounder. I think Mark's point earlier is a good one. We've been using dual mobility for a while. We know that there's going to be corrosion, but whether or not that rises to a significant clinical problem, we don't really know. I think we have enough experience now to say that it's probably not going to be a huge problem, right? If it is a problem, it's probably has a relatively low incidence, particularly in the patients that you're talking about with limited lifespans. I can tell you in private practice, at least around me, there are a lot of people that are using dual mobility. And I kind of get it because if a patient dislocates, that's on you as a surgeon. Like that's, you did something functionally wrong. If a patient has an issue 10 years down the line, if there's an implant problem or whatnot, that's a, a little bit easier to pass off. And so dual mobility, it prevents an immediate clear and present danger of dislocation, especially as a posterior surgeon. And so I think you're going to see a lot of people adopt. I don't disagree with you. We saw the same thing with large head metal and metal hips. You know, they were perceived to be more stable, rapid adoption, even in older patients. Initially, metal and metal bearings were for the young active patients, the guy who wants to go out and run. But very quickly, they were used in hip fracture patients and old patients for the perceived improvement in instability. If you look at the AJRR data, there is a slow increasing trend towards use of dual mobility, which has been going on for several years, but it's not a dramatic increase in utilization. So this next article, it was interesting to me because of a clinic visit. A guy came in and he was for a preoperative appointment and he said, are you doing, and then he named this special knee replacement. And I kind of said, well, no, I'm doing a normal knee replacement. So that got me thinking about what are patients specifically, what are they looking for online? And so that brings us to this article of Modern Internet Search Analytics and Total Joint Arthroplasty, What Are Patients Asking and Reading Online? This is by Tony Shen and the team at HSS. This article is currently in press. You can find it on Journal of Arthroplasty online. And basically what they did is they took a clean Google browser then they inputted six different terms, variations of total hip, total knee. And then they use this machine-based learning. They basically categorize the responses of what you could find online into different categories. And the answers of these questions that were raised into different categories. They looked at the most popular types of questions that were raised by patients for both total hip, total knee. They looked at what type of questions were asked, what answers they were seeking, as well as where you could find these, what type of websites were actually explaining these. I thought it was a great study because it not only highlights what patients are searching for online, but it's probably what they want to know in clinic. It also generated the top 10 questions that people ask in total hip and total knee replacement. And by far the most interesting question that people ask, and I have never had a patient ask this, how do you poop after a total hip replacement? 
it also kind of looked at what type of questions were asked. So, and the answer was total knees, they're mostly related to pain management. Total hips, the questions were more related to longevity, the technical aspects of the surgery, implant fixation, as well as DVT prophylaxis. Commercial websites and academic institutions were the most frequently referenced websites. Of note, legal websites were also referenced for hip replacement, which is not completely a surprise. I thought it was a well-done study in looking at what patients are looking at online after their total hip and total knee. And as we go forward, stuff like this is going to be very important. And not only a marketing standpoint, but also from a patient education standpoint. So we kind of talked about the strength of the study. It provides interesting information as to where to target maybe our preoperative education, specifically with hip replacements, looking at the ability to perform specific tasks after surgery. We can maybe use this at AUKUS to see what we should be targeting our education for. Surprisingly, there wasn't a whole lot about approach on hips. One of the limitations is it used Google in a clean browser, and we all know that Lenny does not have a clean browser. But I kind of look at Google as like this living, breathing thing where if you go 10 miles down the road, you're going to get a different result. It's very much influenced by what you've done in the past, what the cookies on your computer are. And so this maybe wasn't completely applicable to somebody who searches for these things, but it was good from a research standpoint because that's kind of what you have to do. Dr. Brown, I'll start with you. Do you do online engagement for your patients? Why are we not? Do you have your own personal website that you engage with patients on? Yeah, we've not done a great job with personal websites. We do have a website for the department and the division, but to compare to some, it's not tremendously slick. When it comes to patient education, we use the AUKUS resources, and I think that's a great role for AUKUS is to really provide high-quality, unbiased data to our patients. And there's already a lot of very well-done articles on the website. We'll print up for patients or we'll direct them to the website if they're interested in doing that. In some ways, this study is refreshing because the questions that patients are asking are questions that you and I don't really want to deal with, frankly. A lot of them, you know, can I vacuum after my knee replacement? That's another question I've never gotten before. And it's not one that I, you know, necessarily want to answer over and over again. I'm fine if patients use the internet for those questions. And it's refreshing in that a lot of the questions that we worry about the most, or at least I worry about the most, did not appear on this list. What's the best implant? What's the best surgical approach? Those are the questions where I think patients can really get led astray uh, by the internet. And there's a number of studies that have been published looking specifically at some of those topics. Luke Worth and Michael Minigini in Indiana published a paper a couple of years ago in Journal of Arthroplasty looking at the uh, anterior approach, for example, and they looked at AUKUS members' websites, and they found that overwhelmingly the websites reported all the potential benefits of the operation without substantiating the claims with actual evidence and very rarely mentioned some of the potential concerns with that uh, surgical approach. So I frankly think more power to patients for looking at these questions online. I think that's perfectly fine to do that. And there may even be some benefit to social media and having patients talk to each other about their experience. And if it helps with their anxiety to talk to people who have been through with it, um, you know, I think there's potential there. So I think this study was encouraging in many ways. You know, being in academics, uh, Anna, you and I probably have uh, less of a need for this sort of thing, but uh, I certainly see the appeal. Uh, you know, we know that healthcare consumers are often making decisions about who they see as a doctor based on websites. That's not uncommon. And I, I know there's a number of studies that have suggested that to be the case. So I think it as a group, we need to just make sure that we're honest and transparent with these websites and that we remember, you know, our duties to the patient and not making claims that are pure marketing claims. So I think we're going to move on now to our final round of questioning. 
what kind of knee design without naming a particular company do you use for your routine primary toe knees? Cruciate sacrificing highly congruent modular tibial total knee. And what sort of situation would make you decide on an increased type of constraint, for example, a PS right off the bat? Valgus deformity is the, the big one and severe flexion contracture. So patients who significant soft tissue issues, I'll often go to a PS. Do you have a BMI cutoff? We have a soft cutoff around 40. And we'll have the conversation with the patient at that point and we'll try to partner with them on weight loss. Uh, pretty hard cutoff around 50. Do you think smoking is a contraindication to a primary total joint? Relative contraindication. Needs to be taken in context with the other comorbidities in the patient. And if you have encouraged someone to quit smoking before their joint replacement, do you do any kind of preoperative testing to confirm that? I threaten to test them, but we rarely follow through. Walk us through your order of cuts. Do you just do the distal femur, finish the femur, balance and extension, and then finish the femur? What's your order? So I'm largely measured resection. So I'll, I'll finish the femur, do the tibia, balance the knee that way. How do you know it's balanced at the end? Yeah, so my balance is based on trials and my assessment of ligament tension. So I don't use a quantitative assessment, no sensors or advanced technology. So it's a qualitative assessment of ligament balance. After you cement, are you putting in a trial poly, assuming you're using cement on your total knee, or are you putting the final poly in at the end? Yeah, cementing 90% of knees, still 10% cementless, and I put the trial poly in with the cement, although I understand the argument not to do that. Actually, in a follow-up question to that, how often are you resurfacing your patellas? About 50%. And then we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, but what is your standard post-op multimodal pain protocol currently? Yeah, so uh, oxycodone, Tylenol, COX-2, anti-inflammatory, uh, dexamethasone when necessary, and Toradol if necessary as well. What is your favorite revision construct? Cement and cones? Is it a press fit, stem? Cement all the stems. On the tibial side, I would say probably use metaphyseal cones 50% of the time. On the femur, it's maybe 20% of the time. And then how often in a revision situation are you going to a varus valgus or a semi-varus valgus constraint? And what are your indications for this? So my indication for varus valgus constraint is revision surgery. I pretty much use it 100% of the time in revisions. I mean, there may be rare exceptions to that. Of course, I did one last week. It was a poly exchange. We didn't have the option to go up in constraint, and so we left it. But yeah, very low threshold to use additional varus valgus constraint. Irrigation solution for primary joints at the end. Plain sailing. Okay. Irrigation for a stage revision. If you're, what is your go-to? We use betadine. We have been considering cefazolin in the irrigation solution as well. But betadine and plain saline really is the mainstay. We were using bacitracin up until about six months ago. For a knee, what is your go-to antibiotic spacer construct? Are you doing, first of all, static or dynamic? And then are you using pre-molded? Are you using like a metal femur with an all-polytibia, a custom antibiotic mold? What's your go-to? Yeah, I've really gotten away from static spacers. That's been a big change in my practice over the last five to seven years. Even in cases that historically have been static spacers, no collateral ligaments, extensor mechanism problems, massive bone loss, I'll put an articulating spacer in those patients. And you can still treat them 
as though they have a static space or you don't have to let them bend their knee. But by doing that, I think we've gotten away from using casts, which are really, really a nightmare. So pretty close to 100% articulating spacers now. Again, I don't necessarily let them bend their knee, but we, we do put that construct in. And then what we use for the spacer depends a little bit on issues like bone loss and whether or not I'm going to bring that patient back the short term for a re-implant or whether or not we're going to try to do a, a one and a half stage sort of protocol where we're going to leave that spacer indefinitely. Yesterday, you know, I had a patient who was older and frail and really did not want to come back. So we did a metal femur and all polytibia as a, you know, long-term spacer. What are you most excited about in the world of joint arthroplasty? over the next 10 years? I hope that we make some progress with infection. I mean, I think that's really continues to be the thing that really is the major limitation to arthroplasty. So I'm hopeful that we can make some significant breakthroughs with infection. What that looks like, I don't know. I think efficiency is the other area where I think we're going to have to really improve what we do. I don't have a specific technology for you there, but infection and efficiency, I think, are going to be critical. Thank you so much to Dr. Brown for joining us today. Make sure you go visit the Young Arthroplasty Group website on acus.org for links to the articles we discussed, as well as information on how to join the Young Arthroplasty Group and AUKUS. Please review us and give us a five-star review, or as I like to call it, a five-millimeter augment. And thanks again for tuning in. Thank you, guys. That was fun. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.